0: Uh, If you have Bibles, go ahead and make your way to Matthew chapter 21. We've got a couple more weeks as we finish up this series we've been in, in the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. As you're making your way there, uh, I just want to share with you a question that I've been thinking about a lot this week from this text. And it's a question that I don't really think about or or consider very often. It's not a common question. The question is this. How do you humbly declare yourself king of the world? How do you humbly declare yourself king of the world? So it's Palm Sunday, uh, as you've heard Will share, and our, and our kids were up here singing this morning. And we're remembering today, we're reflecting on Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And as I've been thinking about that this week, it led me to, to really wrestle with this question. Like, is it possible for someone to declare themselves king and to, to do that in a humble manner. We have several uh, English teachers uh, in the room with us at, at Liberty on a typical Sunday, and as any of them would tell you, an oxymoron is a figure of speech where you take two contradictory terms and you put them together. So the one example that always comes to mind for me is jumbo shrimp. Um, those two words, if you just consider them se- you know, separately, they're, they're contradictory words, but we put them together and it means something for us in our, in our language. Well, if ever there were an oxymoron in our culture, and an oxymoron that our culture would struggle to comprehend, it would be a humble triumph. Humble triumph. Those words don't fit together well in our understanding of the way the world works. People who triumph, people who rise to the top, they're almost always known for their arrogance, So you know about their triumph, and largely you know about their triumph because they tell you about their triumph. There's a particular individual running for a a prominent office in our nation right now (laughs) who, who stands atop the socioeconomic ladder in our society, and he often reminds everyone that will listen of his successes and his wins and his victories in life. On the other hand, people who are humble seem to be the ones that are triumphed over If they're celebrated at all, it's almost always because they're persevering, they're enduring as they're being triumphed over or at the bottom of the ladder, whatever that ladder may be. So according to this paradigm that we operate out of most of the time, triumphant people aren't humble and humble people aren't triumphant. But I would suggest to us this morning that it is possible. It is possible. And one of the best, though flawed, examples that we have... I think, comes from the history of our own nation. Most of you are probably aware uh, that George Washington was the first president of the United States. Uh, And most of you are also likewise probably aware that he was the general who led an army of this brand new nation to victory over Great Britain in the American Revolutionary War. What you might not be as aware of are the specifics of the timeline of that. So the Revolutionary War ends in 1783... And it's not until six years later, 1789, that Washington is elected as the first president of the United States. And that gap is a revolution in and of itself. And it's one that's incredibly easy for us to miss or to take for granted. Because as far as we can tell, George Washington became the first famous military leader in the history of the world to win a war and then to voluntarily step down rather than grabbing up as much power and position as he possibly could in that moment. So it's the height of his triumph. He's the the head general in an army that just defeated a a massive uh, nation and their army, gains their independence. The height of his triumph, he has the humility to step out of power and do what he believes is best for the good of all people, not just himself. I think we could safely call that a humble triumph. And almost universally, we appreciate George Washington, his example, because he is the man who refused to become king. But what we're going to read today is probably a little bit more difficult for us to comprehend. Because on a Sunday like this, 2,000 years ago, Jesus essentially did the reverse of Washington. He won no military battle, despite what the hopes and the expectations of the Jewish people of that day would have been, but he very much declared himself to be king. And not just king of a nation, but really king of the entire world. And the Apostle Matthew is going to suggest this is both humble and triumphant at exactly the same moment. How is that possible? That's the question we'll try to understand a little bit more deeply as we dive in today. So follow along with me as I read Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives... And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is God's word. pray for us. God, we pray that you would help us to wrestle in this difficult-to-comprehend idea that you are a humble king, uh, that you are one who triumphs in humility. We confess that that's difficult for us to comprehend because we don't have many good examples of that. But we pray that we would see how much we need you to be triumphant and how much we need you to be humble at exactly the same time. Work in our hearts through the power of your spirit, through the power and effectiveness of your word this morning. And we pray that in your name. Amen. So three things uh, for us to look at in this text this morning. Jesus' identity, Jesus' reception, and Jesus' humble triumph. So first, we'll talk about Jesus' identity. Uh, If you skip to the end of this passage, the people of Jerusalem ask exactly the right question. Who is this? Who is this? And I'd submit to you that both now and back then, this is singularly the most important question in the world. Jesus is a a historical figure. Of that, there's no doubt. Regardless of your religious views, uh, we agree that he lived and walked as flesh and blood on the face of the earth in first century Palestine. Far more disputed, though, is who exactly this man was. There are various perceptions of Jesus that floated around during his own life, during his own ministry. Um, Some said that he was the reincarnated Elijah, the prophet from the Old Testament. Some said that he was a reincarnated John the Baptist, a, a prophet from the New Testament. And there's really no truth in either of those. Those are just cases of Mistaken identity. Other people, though, call him teacher. They call him rabbi. Or they call him a prophet. Uh, That's the response of the people in the crowds here in this text. Jesus is a prophet. And those answers uh, are a lot better. They're a lot better. Jesus is a teacher, and Jesus is a prophet. It's just that those answers are actually woefully incomplete. So incomplete, actually, that to stop there is really to miss the identity of Jesus altogether. So who is this? Well, more than a teacher and more than a prophet, Jesus is also the Messiah. He's the anointed Savior King of God's people. And as we'll see in what unfolds in this event and then beyond that in the story, Jesus is the anointed one from God who has come into the world to rescue humanity from sin and then to reign As the king over God's kingdom. But up to this point in the story, that's not been a widely known aspect of Jesus' identity. In fact, up to this point, it's really been the opposite. Uh, For the majority of Jesus' ministry, he doesn't want it known broadly, he doesn't want it known publicly that he is the Messiah. Uh, Scholars and authors sometimes refer to this as the messianic secret. So Jesus will cast demons out of people, and as the demons come out, they'll say, you are the Son of God, and he says, stop telling people that. Shh, quiet. And then his disciples start to figure out he's more than a teacher, he's more than a prophet, and he asks them, who do you say I am? And Peter confesses famously, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. But then in Matthew chapter 16, verse 20, Matthew, another one of those disciples, records this. Then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why keep that a secret? Why would you keep that a secret? Wouldn't you want people to know that the anointed king of God's people has arrived on the scene? Of course you'd want people to know that. But how people come to find that out and when people come to find that out makes a huge difference in their understanding of it. To make himself known as the Christ would no doubt create its own array of misconceptions among the people. The expectation, the, the, the hope of the Jews in that day was that the Messiah would come and that he would, as he came, bring political freedom and political liberation from Rome. He would bring this day where there was a renewed triumph for the Jewish people. He would perhaps be wearing a hat that said, make Israel great again. <laughs> You'll get it, if you haven't yet. <laughs> so here, here's the thing, Jesus... Jesus is the Christ. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the one who reigns in God's kingdom. But he's a completely new kind of king. So just before this entry into Jerusalem, in Matthew chapter 20, the end of that chapter, Jesus speaks about greatness in God's kingdom. And he says that the great ones in God's kingdom are servants. And he ultimately points to himself as the example of that. And he says, "...I came not to be served, but to serve." And to give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is a new kind of king in a new kind of kingdom. He's a servant king. He's a humble king. And because he's this new kind of king, it's critical for Jesus to publicly reveal that aspect of his identity in a very deliberate way. And that's what we see unfold in Matthew 21. It's this moment for Jesus' public reveal as the Messiah. And so he picks the Passover week a week where the city of Jerusalem would be packed full of people. The estimates vary, but uh, one estimate, a, a particular line of thinking, uh, estimates that 30,000 residents called Jerusalem home at the time, but on Passover week it was upwards of 180,000 people, so six times the amount of the normal population that would pack itself into Jerusalem to worship at the temple. With that many people coming and going from Jerusalem, it would have been easy for Jesus to enter quietly and without fanfare. And he also does something really unique in this. In all the other accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, he walks everywhere. He walks everywhere. In fact, this journey that he's on, that culminates in Jerusalem, begins in a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is a hundred miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus walks all of that, except the last two miles from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And I don't think it's because he's tired. He's making a very intentional declaration by riding into the city. And Matthew says that it takes place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And he quotes there from the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 9, about God's coming Messiah. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So this is very much a, a kingly entry into the city. But whereas the the culturally appropriate vehicle for a victorious king's entry would be a war horse, Jesus, the humble king, enters on a beast of burden. He comes in on a service animal. And it's this picture of Jesus as the new kind of king in a new kind of kingdom. He is the saving, he is the ultimately triumphant king, but his salvation and his triumph will come in a radically different way than people expect. It's going to come through service. It's going to come through self-sacrifice. So Jesus deliberately, his entry deliberately matches his identity. He's the the humble king, and that's how he enters Jerusalem. So that's Jesus' identity. Second, let's look at Jesus' reception. How do the people respond to his declaration of himself as the humble king? This very public display. Well, there's actually two groups of people here in this text. And if we only see one group of people we'll at any nuance between them, it's going to leave us with a really problematic question about how all of these people could shout Hosanna on Sunday and then turn around and cry, crucify him on Friday. right? Sometimes we, we think about that, we look at this, we, and the, the point is, well, we're fickle. We're fickle people, we can change our perspective on that. And that's exactly true. There's a lot of truth in that. We are fickle. We will honor Jesus one day. We will turn around and want nothing to do with him another day. But I would propose to you that there's actually something else and and really two distinct crowds that are here in this text. And I'll call them the crowd and I'll call them the city just to help differentiate them. There's the crowd outside the walls. There's the city inside the walls. And the crowd has a really different reaction to Jesus than the city. And those two different reactions help us consider our own response and how we're going to receive Jesus. So on the one hand, you've got the crowd. And if we were to follow the story and we went back to uh, chapter 20, we would see that this crowd is actually forming around Jesus much earlier, even from the city of Jericho. And they're traveling with Jesus, at least from Jericho, if not earlier. Uh, These are fellow pilgrims with Jesus, many of them probably from Galilee in the north coming with Jesus to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it's that crowd that Matthew's speaking of, particularly in verses 8 and 9 here in this passage. The crowd receives Jesus with what I'll call naive praise. Naive praise. So they respond with honor, they respond with esteem, they respond with worship even. They are ready to receive Jesus as king. And so they remove their cloaks and they lay them out on the road like a red carpet. For him. And they cut branches off of the trees and they lay those down as well. It's the symbol of Jewish nationalism and victory. And they shout, Hosanna, oh, save us. And they call him the son of David, which, just like that prophecy from Zechariah, is another Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah being one from the line of David, the king of Israel, who would sit on David's throne forever. So, this crowd is ready to receive Jesus as king, acknowledge him as the Messiah. But there's a naivete to their praise. Because though Jesus will be the triumphant king, they can't comprehend that the path to his triumph will come through his death. And see, Jesus isn't just the humble king, he's about to become the humiliated king, he's about to be beaten. He's about to be hung up. He's about to be exposed for hours, experiencing the the shame and experiencing the torture of death on a Roman cross. So however joyful this crowd might be as Jesus enters, they're going to be really disillusioned by his death. Just as for us, a humble triumph is an oxymoron in our culture. We struggle to put those two terms together. Well, there is no more shocking oxymoron for a Jew in the first century than a crucified Messiah. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that the conquering king of God's people is hanging cursed on a tree under the hand of Rome. That makes no sense to a first century Jewish person so they praise him on Sunday, but it's with a little bit of naivete. They don't understand how the triumph will come about. The city, on the other hand, they respond with what I'm going to call nervous rejection. So the people of the city, it says, are stirred up in verse 10. And that word in the original language means to tremble or to shake. So they're, they're nervous, they're apprehensive. And so they ask, who is this? And they ask that question not so much as someone who's seeking to find out the truth, but as someone recognizing that this man is going to upset the order of things. Whereas the crowd welcomes the triumph of King Jesus, but they're naive about how that's going to happen, the city doesn't even want the triumph at all. They're not ready to receive Jesus as king. And moreover, they're ready to bring opposition to this new king and his new kingdom. So it's really this first group, this crowd, who is before and behind Jesus coming into the city, they're the ones that shout Hosanna on Sunday. It's the second group, the city, that shout crucify him on Good Friday. And in light of that, we can ask ourselves, which of these ways are you and I more likely to receive Jesus or respond to Jesus? Some of us are are more prone to be like the crowd. And we'll receive Jesus with naive praise, So if you ask us, uh, we're ready to welcome him. We would say, yes, I am ready to welcome Jesus as king. But perhaps we do that naively over-realizing his triumph and what his kingdom actually looks like. What this often looks like in practice is Christians thinking that because I now follow Jesus and because he is king, all of the problems in my life will now be fixed. All of my bills will be paid. All of my broken relationships will be healed. I won't get sick anymore. That is a naive over-realization of the triumph of Jesus. He will triumph, and likewise his people with him, but it will come through suffering, and it will come through self-sacrifice and service. First his, and then ours in turn. Perhaps, though, we're more like the city, and we respond to Jesus with nervous rejection, we start to perceive something of who Jesus is and what he's come to do, and we recognize Jesus is going to turn the world on its head. He's going to, he's going to turn my life upside down. He's going to bring about a, a new beginning. That response is actually a lot less naive than the first one. It's a lot more accurate to count the cost and consider who Jesus is and what he's about to do. But if that leads us to reject and oppose Jesus, that means that we have set ourselves in opposition to God's anointed Savior, King, the one who ultimately will triumph and will reign over everything that is. Now these are two incredibly common responses to Jesus, both in our hearts and in the hearts and the minds of the people that we live and work and play amongst. It's It's not so simple as to say, don't be the ones who reject Jesus, we also have to consider, are we praising him naively and not considering how he actually brings about the triumph in his kingdom? These are incredibly common responses, and yet, neither of them adequately mirror Jesus' identity as the humble king. Instead of either of those responses, we're meant to find genuine hope in the humble triumph of Jesus. So let's talk about that lastly, Jesus' humble triumph. I don't know exactly how each of you here today would answer that question who is Jesus? I'm sure there'd be a variety of responses if we were to survey every single person in the room about that question. But whatever you do believe, whatever you don't believe this morning, I just want you to consider how audacious and how unique Jesus' claims are compared to especially other rulers and other religious leaders in the history of the world. In the history of the world, you've got triumphant leaders who draw all attention to themselves as the one to be served. These are the Egyptian pharaohs. These are the Roman Caesars. These are military leaders throughout history. You also have humble leaders like Muhammad or Buddha. And they deflect attention away from themselves. They they, they consider themselves to be fellow pilgrims on the journey to paradise or on the journey to nirvana or whatever the end goal of, of whatever their religion says is the end goal. Jesus points to salvation in himself. He parades into Jerusalem. He declares himself to be a king, and yet he does that on a donkey, radically redefining what it means to be a king. As the Messiah, he is the savior king of the people of God, and yet he has come not to be served, but to serve, but to give his very life in order to purchase and redeem people so Jesus says here simultaneously, look to me as the king. Look for my triumph. It is coming, but it is coming through my humility. So look to me as I give up my own self at infinite cost in order to serve you, in order to save you. And this is really the only way that the gospel is good news for you and me. Without the humble triumph of Jesus, you and I have no hope in the world. See, triumph without humility is our destruction. If Jesus were just another king, he would do what kings do when they step into power, which is to wipe out all opposition against them. And in our case, that means Jesus' triumph is bad news. Because left to ourselves, we are the enemies of God. We are the opposition. And so triumph without humility just means we get steamrolled by the holiness of God. But Jesus is humble. Being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he made himself nothing. He became humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in his humility, in his humiliation, he purchases and redeems we who are otherwise his enemies. So apart from his humility, his triumph means our destruction. On the other hand, humility without triumph is our tragedy. Without the triumph of Jesus, he's just another martyr in the ground. Another great example for us to follow, no doubt, but incapable of actually accomplishing our salvation. And I would submit to you that we don't just need another virtuous, dead example of how to be good. We need a Savior King to rescue us. What good is Jesus' humility if he doesn't triumph over sin and death? His humility would just be our tragedy. And this is why the Apostle Paul says things that are a little bit crazy for us to hear in our modern sensibilities. He says, I boast in the cross of Christ. Triumph in our culture sounds arrogant. It almost always sounds arrogant, and so we're tempted to downplay this. But I just would say to you men and women, don't ever apologize for the triumph of God. It does us no good to focus exclusively on the humility of Jesus and minimize or downplay his triumph. We just need to recognize how and when that triumph comes. It's a different kind of king in a different kind of kingdom. But his kingdom is triumphant. So Jesus' triumph without humility is our destruction. Jesus' humility without his triumph is our tragedy. Jesus' humble triumph is our salvation. It's our only genuine hope for real redemption. See, Jesus is triumphant to reverse the effects of sin and death themselves, to reconcile the world to himself, but he's humble enough to reconcile me. And he's triumphant enough to save the whole world, but he's humble enough to save me. And he's triumphant to bring a new beginning to all of God's created order, but he's humble enough to make a new beginning for you and for me. And so this week, as we celebrate Holy Week, may God open our eyes again, or maybe for the first time for you, and just give us eyes to see that his triumph is our triumph because his humility is our hope. And his veneration is our victory because his meekness is our mercy and his exaltation is our emancipation because his suffering is our salvation and his glory is our good because his humility is our hope save us king jesus what a great salvation is ours in him So may we neither nervously reject him nor naively praise him, but instead may we embrace as our only hope in the world the humble triumph of our Savior King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, save us. Hosanna to the Son of David. Pray that we would join the rejoicing of the crowds, but do so more aware that your triumph comes through your suffering. Pray that we would never downplay your triumph, that we would see that's our only hope. But I pray that we would always perceive you to be the new kind of king and the new kind of kingdom that you are and that you bring. Would you help us this week? We are fickle people, and we are weak people, and we are weary people. And we tend to either love your triumph and self-righteously hold that over the rest of the world that needs to know your love or we love your humility and we're afraid to actually speak about your triumph. And the world and we ourselves need both your triumph and your humility. Even as we come to this table today, help us to see your humility. You gave yourself for us that you're that your kingdom might be good news for us. May we see both your humility and the triumph of you and your kingdom as we come. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.